Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Once upon a time, there was a pious man, a God-fearing man, who had gone on a religious pilgrimage. He'd taken a long journey in order to perform an act of worship. And on his way home, as he faced the, the, the long distance, the journey that he had to, to make, he did what a lot of us do on long road trips. He occupied his time with an audiobook. I don't know about you, but I love the prospect of the highway ahead of me, hours to go, and I can listen to things that uh, I've wanted to, but I, I haven't had the time. Uh, a lot of books that, that I've wanted to get into, but uh, haven't had the opportunity or the inclination. When you're trapped alone in the car with a book, you kind of have to go through with it. And so that's what he did. The only problem was, uh, this was once upon a time, back in history, before the technology to play audiobooks existed. And so the way you had to do it back then was to just open up your scroll and, and read aloud which is how people read back then. We imagine reading silently to yourselves, but back then, if you were reading, even for your own enjoyment or edification, you would read aloud. And so this traveler read aloud. Uh, he opened up his scroll on the dashboard of his chariot, and he just read as he traveled, which probably wasn't as dangerous as it sounds, because number one, he was a pretty rich guy, so he could afford to have a driver for his chariot so that he could read without having to worry about uh, going off the road. The other thing is the chariot itself doesn't seem to have been traveling too fast because it was possible for a person on foot to walk up to the chariot and engage with it as it traveled. So this was going to be a long road trip indeed. The story, of course, is a story of the Ethiopian eunuch. He's a servant, a high courtier of Queen Candace of Ethiopia, and he's traveled to Jerusalem to pay homage, to do an act of worship. And as he travels back, He's reading, unfurled on the dashboard of his chariot, a scroll from the prophet Isaiah. Now, this is the story as you find it in uh, the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. 
the eunuch was probably not the first person and certainly not the last to be reading an Old Testament prophet and wonder what in the world is going on. What is this prophet even talking about? Of all of the, the books, the sections of Scripture, I think the ones that are most alien to us, most difficult to understand, are the, the, the words, the proclamations of the prophets. Because so often we have lost the historical context. We're not familiar enough with the setting to understand the significance of the words. Or sometimes the words themselves are so cryptic and it's difficult to know to whom they are referring. So the eunuch is in a situation that we can all relate to if we've ever tried to read, for example, the prophet Isaiah. And so he's wondering a question many of us have wondered, what is this guy talking about? The particular passage that he's reading, Isaiah 53, is interesting because Isaiah 53, we would now see clearly, is speaking of Jesus Christ. Like we as Christians who've been nurtured on this idea, especially in the Advent season, that Isaiah is prophesying the coming of Jesus, Jesus comes through clearly to us in the words of the prophet. Who else could they be speaking of? But not so clearly to those who first received them. In fact, there's a whole series of prophecies leading up to Isaiah 53. Prophecies that were later identified by scholars as servant songs. They are songs in prose, poetry, that are dedicated to a coming servant, a servant who will come and who will suffer, who is associated with the Messiah who has been promised. And so in order to get to Isaiah 53, you have to go through Isaiah 42 and the 10 chapters that follow. But in Isaiah 42 through 52, you find four of these servant songs. And through the season of Advent, we're going to be looking at these songs as a way of seeing Jesus with fresh eyes. As we anticipate the coming of Christ, we want to learn to see Christ as he was revealed in the prophets. I recognize sometimes this can get a little old. Right? This theme, oh, let's find Jesus in the Old Testament, but I think it's something we can't do often enough because it is so significant, so significant to New Testament authors. All of their authority for seeing Jesus as who he is, all the revelation they have about the Messiah, it comes from Old Testament prophecy just like this. And if we want to see him as they saw him and rejoice at his coming as they did, we need to see Jesus through the eyes of the prophets. So the eunuch is reading prophecies of this suffering servant who is to come, and Philip guides him in the path. He shows him that the suffering servant who is to come is none other than Jesus. As we turn back in our scroll of Isaiah, we go back to the beginning of this thread, this discussion of this servant. We land in Isaiah 42, in the first four verses of Isaiah, in this first servant song. And these are the words that we read. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. That's the first servant song. 
What does it say to us about this servant? There are three things I want to talk about. First of all, it's what you see at the very beginning, this idea of God's delight in the servant who is to come. God's delight. We're told God's soul delights in him. The second thing is that the servant is gentle and yet determined. He's gentle yet determined. So the song tells us something about the character of the servant who is to come. And then finally, it tells us about his purpose. It says he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So let's start with delight. Jesus is the chosen one and God's soul delights in him. The very beginning of our passage, the first verse of Isaiah reads this way. Uh, Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And the striking thing to me is that as this servant is introduced, the emotion with which he's introduced is delight. Delight. This is my servant, God says. My soul delights in him, rejoices in him. God, in sharing, in revealing this messenger, this servant, the thing he wants you to know first and foremost is he delights me deeply, profoundly. I mean, how do we even think about what it means for God to have a soul and for God's soul to delight in someone? The extent of that joy, the extent of that satisfaction is hard to fathom. So all of this prophecy begins in an atmosphere of rejoicing and joy and delight. And those words of joy that are spoken by Isaiah don't stop there. This is where it gets really interesting to me. In the New Testament, there were certain moments in the life of Jesus that are marked by signs because of their significance. And if you look at those moments, you will see that something happened. I'm thinking in particular of the baptism of Jesus and in his transfiguration. When Jesus goes to John the Baptist in order to be baptized, he goes down to the water, he is baptized, and something happens when this takes place. This is no ordinary baptism. When Jesus is baptized, there's a voice from heaven that is heard, and it speaks these words, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. These words are an allusion to the prophecy in Isaiah 42, verse 1. The word, uh, behold my servant, in Isaiah, the word servant is actually a word that in its range of meaning includes son. It could be translated son as well. To be beloved is also to be chosen. The same word, the range of meaning there. So it's clear that the, the voice from heaven that is speaking is speaking words of delight over the servant who was promised and now has come. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And the same thing happens at his transfiguration. When Jesus later in the gospel accounts is transfigured, again the voice from heaven comes. And so we see at these moments of confirmation, of revelation of who Jesus is, God speaks audibly to the witnesses around, telling them the words that Isaiah prophesied, expressing the delight of his soul in the coming of Jesus and in the person of Jesus. The parallel is even stronger when you consider at the baptism, not only is there a voice that speaks from heaven, but the Holy Spirit descends 
upon Christ in the form of a dove? And does not Isaiah say, I have put my spirit upon him? And so you can see these, these uh, goosebumpy parallels. You imagine what it would have been like to witness these things as someone steeped in the prophecy of Isaiah and now to see them coming to pass. What it suggests to us is something that I think we don't always appreciate, which is the extent to which the work of Jesus from start to finish is steeped in an atmosphere of joy. God rejoices in the sending of Jesus into the world. He rejoices the way you rejoice in a wonderful gift and rejoice in the act of giving it. I don't know about you, but I struggle sometimes to know what the right gift is to get for someone I love who will remain nameless. I just don't know how to, how to give. And so when an idea comes to me and it's really good, I get excited. I get excited about it. I take joy in the gift. And I take joy in the thought of what it will be like to give the gift and, and what that moment is going to, to be like, the experience of it, right? And so I anticipate shortly there will come a moment when I will say something like, behold my gift in which I delight. I really hope you do too. We've all been there, right? You know what that kind of joy is like when, when your focus is on the thing that you're giving it, on the one that you're giving it to, and there's a kind of delight that overwhelms you and, and a happiness that oftentimes is out of all proportion to the actual gift that's being given, right? Because so often the gifts that we give are, are at best mere tokens of the love that motivates the gift. In this case, not so much. The gift here is so much more than a mere token The gift here is the person of Jesus Christ. It is the one who will bring salvation. This is the gift that God gives and his soul delights in it. He delights in sharing his son with you. He delights and invites you into the joy of that giving and receiving. And this is the whole atmosphere in which the work of salvation is done. There is nothing stern or rigorous about it. There's nothing frowning about the gift of God, Jesus Christ, to the world. Not at all. He does it in joy, with delight. And he draws us into that delight and that celebration. And that divine joy that is expressed here is revelatory. We said before that God reveals himself in words and also in signs. And the signs he gives, like the miracles that Jesus performs, reveal to us who he is. And this is true here as well. God is revealing his character to us in this moment. And his character is delight, joy, love, overflowing and abundant that reaches out and embraces, that gives gifts sacrificially. A love in the character of God that demands that I give for you what is most precious to me that I offer myself up for you, and I delight in doing it. This is the character of God as he reveals himself to us. Sometimes it's hard for us to be faithful Christians. Sometimes it's difficult for us to live as we believe we ought to live. And part of that difficulty is because we see our life in Christ as a kind of duty or obligation. When we become Christians, Involved in that are all sorts of responsibilities, many of which we don't even recognize or know. 
And so we're constantly discovering these ways in which we've fallen short, constantly discovering ways in which other Christians are doing it better than we are, and there's a sense of failure and inferiority and joylessness. This, of course, is not at all the spirit in which the Christian life is meant to be lived. It's not the spirit of salvation. The spirit of salvation is delight. And the Christian life ought to be one of delight. We ought to strive to take pleasure in all that God calls us to do. If we do not delight in God, if we do not delight in Jesus, then all the rest will be a bore. All the rest will be a tragedy. But when we delight in him, when we find the joy that he expresses in the gift, when we feel that joy in receiving, it changes everything, even the way we see our failure. Because even our failures turn us back to him and his goodness and his delight and give us the ability to share in it. So one of the things as Christians that, that we ought to be awakened to by the prophet Isaiah is that salvation is about delight and entering into the joy of God. The joy we might think of as an inner Trinitarian delight between the Father and the Son that we are invited into to participate in. Jesus is God's chosen one and God's soul delights in him and he invites you more than anything to delight in Jesus Christ. But Jesus is also a quiet conqueror. A quiet conqueror. We continue with Isaiah 43. You read these words. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. As more of the character of the servant is revealed, you find there a surprising gentleness. A gentleness in the way that he's described, but also a determination. He will do what he does gently, but he will get it done. At Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration, Isaiah 42 is alluded to but in Matthew 12, it is not just alluded to, it is quoted almost entirely. Matthew quotes these verses, and he does it to explain a peculiar mystery about the character of Jesus, the behavior of Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but sometimes Jesus does things that don't make sense. Sometimes Jesus behaves in ways that his followers have to scratch their heads at. Jesus does unexpected things, and they need explanation. And Matthew, in his gospel, as he records the, the acts of Jesus, also gives us a commentary trying to explain the things that baffled people so much when uh, they were done by Jesus. So if you look at Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12 recounts uh, one of those interesting episodes where Jesus doesn't uh, do what you might expect. He doesn't react the way that we would react the situation. So Matthew 12, starting in verse 15, uh, many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then we get a quotation that is more or less what we've just read. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, 
nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings forth justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. The reason for the differences in our text, of course, is, is one we're familiar with, which is that New Testament authors, when they quote Old Testament passages, do it through the medium of a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. So sometimes there are differences because there are differences in language. Those differences don't, don't really alter the meaning, but they do sometimes give us insight into the meaning that we wouldn't have if we couldn't compare that range of possibilities. And what Matthew is doing here is kind of interesting. And I'll admit, this behavior of Jesus is, is one of the behaviors I've always found a little puzzling. Because Jesus, more than once, will heal someone. He'll perform a great miracle. And then he'll tell that person, don't talk about it. Don't say anything about this. And some of you grew up in church. Others didn't. I did. And one thing we were told we ought never to do is not talk about it. Not keep it secret. The way I was raised, uh, I was told to believe, like, Jesus didn't do anything we shouldn't be talking about. Like, we should be going up to people and, and talking about what Jesus did all the time. And, and Jesus has never, like, appeared to me and healed me of anything. If he did, if Jesus laid hands on me and everything that was wrong with me was suddenly right, I think I would feel a certain amount of desire to talk about it, to share it, maybe make a YouTube video and post it. I'd want people to know what had happened. And so the urge that Jesus is pushing back against is probably the strongest urge you would feel in that moment. right? You've been healed from something you thought there was no deliverance from. You feel the joy, the delight that you were invited into. And now Jesus says, let's keep this between ourselves. What's going on, Jesus? Why, why be this way? People scratch their heads, and Matthew explains the reason. And he doesn't get into psychology. He doesn't get into motivation. He gets into prophecy. Because the reason why Jesus did this is because it had been foretold by the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes to us our text. He will not cry aloud. You will not hear his voice in the streets. This guy will not be beating his chest. He will not be boasting about himself. He will not be saying, Behold the Messiah! I have come. Gather around and let me speak. This is not the way this servant will behave. And so Jesus, in acting this way, is acting in a way that I don't think we realize. With, uh, Jesus acts with discretion. When we think about the life of Jesus as it's chronicled in the Gospels, and we imagine Jesus constantly, every day, doing this sort of spectacular ministry, drawing great crowds to him. Everywhere he walks, there's like all these people following him. But the events that, that are recounted in the Gospels that are like that are, are, are occasional and selective. For the most part, Jesus shuns these kinds of attention. Right? If Jesus gets too popular, he gets on a boat and goes over the water. He's not looking for that. Now, you can, you can try to understand that in human terms, and I think uh, there are rationales for it. Uh, Jesus doesn't want people to gather around him too much and make too much of himself because they don't really understand why he's come. There's a sense in which people who anticipate the Messiah in the New Testament anticipate the wrong kind of Messiah. 
the deliverance that they're looking for is a deliverance from political forces. They're looking to have a kingdom established, but it's very much the kind of kingdom that comes and goes in the history of the world. And so Jesus has come to do something different. The mission of Jesus is so different from those expectations. These people, they were looking for someone to conquer the Romans, but Jesus had come to conquer death, which is a little bit different. And so it makes sense that, that he wouldn't do it the way we would do it. Jesus wasn't seeking to go viral. His strength was not in his popularity, in his ratings, in his numbers. That was not where the strength of Jesus lay. At the same time, though, he does it to fulfill the prophecies spoken about him. Because his character, who he is, has been revealed. Which also gives you an interesting insight into what it must have been like to live with Jesus. I think a lot of times when you imagine life with Jesus, if you put yourself in the place of, for example, Matthew, and, and what must it have been like to, to be friends with someone who was never wrong about anything? I always tell Lori, like, I can't relate to that, but you, you know what that's like. Yeah, um, the guy was never wrong. Frustrating, but I think there would have been something more to the experience, and and I struggled to find an appropriate analogy, and I failed. So I'm going to give you an inappropriate analogy. Uh, you know how when you're playing video games, uh, as you do things, you unlock accomplishments, you get little badges and rewards. They kind of chime on the side of the screen as you do things, and and those uh, reflect a higher significance to the actions that you're taking. Like you just did something, but it actually earned for you a reward on a higher level. Now imagine that you're living with Jesus, and you realize occasionally that everything he does, the words that he speaks, the way that he is, the choices he makes, all of it is, is unlocking a badge, sounding a chime of Old Testament prophecy. And you realize, I live with a person, day in and day out, who is real, just like I am, who is flesh and blood, just like I am. And yet, at the same time, we live in the air of fulfillment. What he does is constantly unlocking prophecy. It is constantly revealing and fulfilling things that we grew up with. Like the ancient words that were drilled into us are now suddenly alive in our everyday lives and being fulfilled by that guy who eats with us and walks with us and speaks to us. The dimension of life that they had been invited into was so profoundly different and is indeed the dimension of life that we are invited into as well. We too, if we live in Christ, live in the air of fulfillment. We follow one who is constantly doing what he was ordained to do, constantly fulfilling the promises that were made about him. Jesus had power. Jesus had power. But Jesus did not use the power the way we use power. It's been over a year since we went through the book of Ephesians and we talked about the new approach to power that Paul describes, where he says, if you have power, if you have authority, you're called to use it differently than it's used in the world. But those who are entrusted with authority are meant to use it sacrificially in service to others. But all the power that we have is meant to be poured out as a gift to those that we are called to serve. And this is what you see 
and the character of Jesus revealed by Isaiah. I mean, these words, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, as Matthew puts it, speak to the gentleness of an all-powerful God. Because a bruised reed is already a delicate thing, already broken. A wick that is about to, to, to smolder, about to be extinguished. We're all good back there. But a wick that is about to be extinguished, right? it's fraught. And the most likely thing that's going to happen to it is that it's going to be destroyed utterly, or the, the flame is going to go out. And if you handle it, certainly if I were to handle a bruised reed as the gorilla in the china shop that I am, that bruised reed doesn't have a chance. And yet, this suffering servant in his gentleness handles the delicate things, the weak things and the broken things, and he doesn't break them. He doesn't sever them or destroy them. Instead, he is gentle with them. He is kind to them. One who possesses more power, more strength, and more right than any of us ever will is more gentle with the weak things than any of us have ever been and treats them, accords them with a respect that none of us have ever felt towards things like that. As you know, in the ancient world, it was virtuous to be strong. And the right way to feel about weakness was to feel contempt. But here comes a servant savior who feels respect and love and care for the weakest things and does not break and does not quench them. But if you look at him and see weakness, you do not see him at all. Because he's revealed here to be powerful indeed. His gentleness is not the kind of gentleness that comes because he, he doesn't like conflict. Instead, this is a determined gentleness. He won't break anything that doesn't need breaking. He won't quench anything that ought not to be quenched. And he will accomplish what he's come to accomplish. He has come to establish justice and he will not be denied. It will happen. The Lord will do this, we're told. This servant who suffers is far from weak. He is strong. But he's showing a divine strength that looks very different from what we understand. So the last thing our passage teaches us about our suffering Savior is that Jesus brings justice to the nations. To the nations. Three times in just four verses, the idea of justice is mentioned. This is the purpose that the servant has in coming. He's come to establish justice. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice till he has established justice in the earth. This is what he's here for. This is his mission to restore justice. Matthew, at the end of his quote, restates that theme this way until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. The scope of what Jesus has come to do is broader than we realize. It's more than we realize. It's more than they understood it to be, but it's also more than we typically understand it to be. The scope involves, for example, both Jew and Gentile. This is the thing that was surprising to the first people to discover it. Like men going through the book of Romans and the men's Bible study. This is one of the things that Paul is actually 
drawing back a curtain on and saying it turns out salvation was never just for, for one tribe. That salvation and God's plan was always broader than that for Jew and Gentile alike. Now, what's being referred to here as the nations uh, is like the tribes of the earth, the people of the earth, the, uh, the ethnic groups of the earth. Because, of course, our idea of nation as, as like a nation state is a relatively recent thing. When people spoke of nations in the ancient world, they meant peoples. They meant peoples. He will come to bring justice to the peoples. In Him will the Gentiles, and not just the Jews, have hope. Jesus is good news for all people made in the image of God, not just for some. So the scope of His work involves both Jew and Gentile. There's a reference in Isaiah right at the end to the coastlands. The idea of the coastlands, which Matthew interprets as Gentiles. And the reason is, you can go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and you'll see after the flood in Genesis 10, as the sons of Noah, their chronology has been given, and, and this first human diaspora is being described where all of these, these sons of the sons will disperse and, and will go out everywhere they are described as the coastland peoples. The coastland peoples spread out in the world. They take different languages and customs with them. That human diaspora, that original flinging of humanity across the face of the earth, those were the coastland peoples. That's what's being referred to there. So Isaiah in the Old Testament is very clearly setting his sights much broader than just the nation of Israel in history. He's thinking of a spiritual entity, a spiritual Israel that will encompass people from every tribe, every nation, every kindred that God is making for Himself this, this, this tribe that draws from all the tribes. The scope of the suffering servant's work is broader than just one ethnicity, but it's also broader than just individual salvation. And it feels strange to say a sentence like that, just individual salvation, like that's a trifle. Just your, your eternal destiny. It's much more than that. Eternal destiny is a big thing. Individual salvation is, is, is a wonderful and glorious thing. If I say that he comes to do more than that, I don't mean to diminish that. What I mean to do is to set in its cosmic proportion the work that Christ has come to do. He has come to restore us but he's also come to restore all of creation, the world that was made. Everything. He's come to establish justice, we're told. And if he's come to establish justice, what that suggests is that what we have now is injustice. Which is no surprise. We're all aware of it. But what we have now is an injustice that runs much deeper than we typically think. Because when we think about the injustice that we face, we imagine solutions to it that are achievable. When we see the injustice that we're surrounded by, what comes to mind is, well, how could we fix this? And we proceed as if that's possible. And with small injustices, superficial injustices, it can be. But with the kind of profound disorder that reigns in the world as a result of sin, there's no human solution to fix it. There is nothing we can do to that injustice, which means and explains why at the root of all our efforts to do justice, there is this futility. 
We act justly to the extent that we're able to, and yet we're conscious that we ourselves perpetrate injustice unavoidably. And that reality is the reality he comes to change. He comes to restore justice, order, the way things ought to be, to make the world as it was meant to be. And this too is the work of this suffering servant, this gentle and determined servant will put the world right again. He comes to gently but certainly restore justice. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Jesus Christ is the hope of all creation. Jesus Christ is the servant that all creation groans in anticipation of. But He is the one our hearts long for. God delights in Him. We've been called to enter into that delight. We are called by the prophet Isaiah to see Jesus as a different kind of conqueror, a different kind of victor, one who uses his strength and his power gently, one who respects what is weak and what is broken, but one who will certainly do what he has promised to do, one we are justified in putting our entire hope in, and more than our hope, one that we are justified in delighting in. God says, behold my servant, in whom my soul delights. We can respond, behold our Savior, in whom our souls delight too. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.